over the next couple months, we have an incredible sponsor that I'm going to keep telling you about. It's Yukon River Knives. Yukon River Knives exists to support missions work in rural Alaska by providing outdoor enthusiasts with premium quality knives. A portion of every purchase goes to helping advance the gospel in rural villages in Alaska. Featuring both handmade and high-quality production knives, Yukon River Knives has curated some of the finest and most useful knives in the market. Go check out their products at yukonriverknives.com and enter Shepherd's Crook at purchase for a coupon code and a 15% discount. As you guys know, in the past, I've worked with Buck Knives. Now, I love Buck Knives, but there's a difference with a knife like that, a mass-produced knife, and the Yukon River Knives. When I think about Yukon River Knives, I'm thinking about a knife that I can give down as a legacy piece to one of my grandsons, and I'm looking forward to that. Also, their small game knife is going to be my primary knife that I use for whitetail season this year and for my boar hunting trip in the early spring. Their knives feel great in the hand, and you can just tell looking at it and the feel of it that it's a well-balanced, great knife with a sharp edge, and it's going to last for a lifetime, and not just my lifetime, but multiple lifetimes. Yes, you can go buy another stock knife, or you can check out what Yukon River is doing and get you a nice, quality, premium knife that you're going to be able to hand down to your grandkids. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor. Come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I hope you guys are all doing well today. I want to apologize on the front end. I am sitting in a coffee shop right now, and I forgot my microphone, so I'm recording on my just my regular computer microphone, and so the quality isn't that great. I just want to apologize in advance, but I think you'll be able to hear this episode and be able to hear it just fine, and hopefully I can do some editing on the other end, on the back end of this, and make it sound as good as I can. But I hope you're all doing well today. It's Monday, and it is a beautiful day outside Tomorrow in our, in our area, I think it's supposed to be 72 degrees, and I'm pretty excited about that. We're ready for the fall to come rolling in. Today, though, we're going to talk about postmillennialism again, and I want to give you six big ideas about really just building on last week's episode on why I am a postmillennialist, and just answer my buddy Nick Balkening's question from a couple weeks ago. We were texting back and forth, and he's like, "What's the big deal? Okay, what what now?" When it comes to postmillennialism, what, what's the big idea after you've embraced the eschatology, this view of eschatology? What does it? What are the implications? And so we're going to look at six implications for me personally today. But I want to go ahead and pray, and then remind you of Yukon River Knives. So let's do that, Father. We just thank you for this time. We ask for a blessing on this, uh, just the next few minutes here, and for everybody that's listening in. God, I thank you for my pastor uh, friends that are out there. I thank you for all my friends that are listening in, and they're not pastors, and everybody from our church. I pray this would be encouraging and edifying uh, to anybody that's listening to this, and I, I just ask that you would help, and I trust you're going to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Yukon River Knives. You guys know you've heard the ad before the podcast began. If you want 15% off on a premium knife, a knife that is a legacy piece that you're going to be able to give to your grandchildren and then your grandchildren will be able to give it to their grandchildren, then go pick up a Yukon River knife. These knives are designed by Owen Baker Jr., who is a knife maker. He's been in the industry for a very long time. The founder of Yukon River Knives is Ron Stepp, and the now runner of the, or now uh, man that's running the ministry slash business now is Jeremy McMorris. 
And there is just so many good things that are going on. You can follow them on Instagram. And I, again, I'll have all these links in the show notes. And just go check out their stuff. If you're looking for an everyday carry knife that is a fixed blade knife, you can certainly find that there. And if you're looking for just a lifetime hunting knife that will do everything that you need it to do from big game to small game, then check out their small game knife and their hunter knife, which is their flagship knife, the hunter. And if you want to get 15% off on all your purchase, just use the coupon code Shepherd's Crook at checkout. Okay, I'm going to give, like I said, six implications answering the, the question, what's the implications of postmillennialism? And these are not all inclusive. There's going to be a lot that I'm going to leave out, like I said last week in the four caveats or five caveats that I gave as the episode began last week. These are just for me personally, what have been the implications of embracing this eschatology? And again, just as a reminder, or just uh, for you to, if you've not listened to the last episode, just go back and listen to that. I hold on to my eschatology with open hands, realizing that these things have been debated for a very long time. This is not as clear, for instance, as the Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, debate or anything like that on soteriology. Uh, there is a biblical position on that, which happens to be the reform position, and that, that the reform position isn't a position, it's just a biblical position. Eschatology is different in, in the sense that there's not a clear cut, 100%, uh, I know for certain this is it, eschatology. So there are really bountiful reasons why we've got to be generous with one another as we hold these positions. But I'm going to give these six implications based on and building on the episode from last week. Okay, number one. First implication of postmillennialism that's been so thrilling for me personally, and that is the inevitable op- optimism that comes from this theology. Now, it is true that you can be optimistic in every other eschatology, uh, and it's okay if you're like, man, I'm a pre-trib dispensationalist and I'm just optimistic about everything. Okay, that that's fine. Uh, praise the Lord. I think that's the Christian posture is one of um, expecting God to work. The Christian posture is one of overwhelming long-term normal joy with seasons of lament. The Christian life is not uh, the status quo is seasons of lament with the occasional joy. The Christian life is joy with occasional lament along the way. And this theology provides, I think, a foundation for that optimism or at least uh, fuel for the optimism, because we believe in Matthew 24 that the worst is behind us. We talked about this last week. The these, uh, these scriptures that point to the worst being back there and the promise after the, the enemy, the devil, has been bound from deceiving the nations that this gospel message is going to go forth into the nations. There is optimism. The worst is behind us. So when I'm looking forward, I'm expecting that the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, will continue to expand and the gospel is going to go forth and it cannot be stopped. So I am optimistic about the future. I'm optimistic optimistic about our personal future and our family, about our church life. It doesn't mean I'm optimistic about everything in the short term because in America right now and a lot of places around the world, you see the World Economic Forum, you see BlackRock, you see all this crazy stuff going on and you see reasons to be pessimistic about certain aspects about how things are going right now or this country where there's been this moral just uh, what erosion of just reality 
So you can be a short-term pessimist over certain things, but a long-term optimist, and especially an optimist about what God, what's going on within the people of God. I mean, we have the, the promise of God, promises of God upon us, the favor of God upon us. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have everything to be optimistic about. We have promises of God's provision in our life. And as we live as God would call us to live, we can expect that God's going to take care of us above and beyond. And in our lives, we got examples of that, of God taking care of us above and beyond what we deserve. And so we are optimistic. I am optimistic because the worst is back there. The future is more and more and more of the reign of Christ, more and more and more Christians. That is just this optimistic excitement that comes with embracing postmillennialism. Okay, second implication, generational ambition. Once you become a postmillennialist, you start to take to heart the things like passages in Proverbs like, uh, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. Children. It doesn't mean that, you know, with all of these, we all love the Bible, and with every eschatology, you love the Bible. But there's something about this idea of most likely, Christ, I mean, Christ could return tomorrow. He could return right now. But most likely, there's going to be a very long time before Christ returns, and the kingdom of God in these kingdom parables is going to continue to slowly grow across this earth as yeast works its way through. Uh, bread, as leaven works its way through. That's how the kingdom of God is going to continue to spread throughout this world. And in the meantime, what we do matters. And so we care about that generational legacy as we look down the road. It, it makes me want to record more. It makes me want to finish the book that I started. It makes me want to write articles again. It makes me want to do all this stuff. It makes me want to build my Sparks family library for my grandchildren. It makes me want to accumulate not possessions and bigger barns for myself, but it makes me want to accumulate to be able to have things to give to the poor and the needy. And the first that are poor and needy in my life are going to be my children and grandchildren. They're the ones that are going to be, be needy of my ability through the grace of God and the work of the hands that he's given me to provide for them. And so I want to do what God has called me to do, and I'm excited about what God's going to do in the future with my children, my two boys and my daughter. So Jordan and I are thinking about and trying to build businesses and trying to be able to, to do what we can to position ourselves to where we can really uh, see our children uh, grow godlier families than we have and to live in such a way that honors uh, the Lord and their generation, but also we want to you know, love them well and set them up well for our grandchildren and for our great-grandchildren. And thinking about the Sparks family lineage and some things that needed to turn the corner in the last two generations uh, in, in my family and, and really having to start so many things right now on my own. And it's just an exciting thing to think about just the general ambition, the, 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 the generational ambition that comes from embracing postmillennialism. Third, um, we have courage over our enemies. Now, this is an interesting point here. When you look in the scriptures, the people of God have always had enemies. And this is something that's been minimized in our day. And the imprecatory Psalms are going to, we're going to get to in point four here. But the implication here is that, that there are enemies that surround us. When you hear the Psalms, David is always talking about his enemies. In the New Testament, you find enemies of the church. You find false teachers, false prophets. You find wolves in the midst of sheep. You find uh, false, or you find evil nations, you see antichrists abound, you, pe you see people doing harm to the church, and the, the, the idea here is that the enemies of God are behind the gates of hell. There are all these different enemies, and the gates of hell are, are, are up, 
And all those enemies are, are behind. And so we can charge the gates of hell with courage, knowing that God has put us on the offense. God has not set the church on defense. That is a huge just a shift that happens when you embrace this eschatology because you realize, wait a minute, Christ's kingdom is moving forward and we are on the offense and we have a shield and we have a sword to wield, which is the word of God. And we have the gospel of Jesus and we commissioned by the one who has all authority in heaven and earth to go forward. And so enemies of God, watch out. Instead of maintaining your status as an enemy of God, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just gives you such great courage to look at people and say, I don't fear you. I fear God. And I will not tremble. At the, at, at, and I will not be, be scared of any man because I fear the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have courage against my enemies. And, and that has been something that's just built over the last few years that's so exciting. Where it's like, hey, I don't care what people think. And it's not a flippant. I just want to be the guy who doesn't care what people think kind of thing. It's, I have a king to serve, and he's given me marching orders. And so I'm going to look at the enemies of God and tell them, bow your knee now, or you're going to bow your knee later. But it's inevitable. You're going to bow, and might as well do it now, because the kingdom of God's rolling forward, and you're either going to get rolled over and judged, or you're going to come and join the team. And so join the team now before it's too late. So that's something exciting. And it's an exciting implication that I have really enjoyed. Uh, implication number four, a new understanding of the imprecatory psalms or the psalms in general. There is a hermeneutical grid that just begins to open up. And a lot of this stuff with, uh, you know, I was in the gospel-centered world and I, the, the scriptures are, it's inarguable that Christ is the center of the scriptures. He has told us that in several places, Luke 24, John chapter 5. To read the scriptures, you, you have to understand that Christ is the key to understanding the Old Testament. And all roads lead to Christ. That That is the story of the judges and the rising and the falling and the deliverance of the judges. It's the story of the sacrifices. It's the story of the law of God and who's going to keep the law of God. And it, it's everywhere throughout the whole Testament. He's the prophet, priest, and king. All of these things that Jesus is. Jesus is the center of the scriptures. And he is, uh, we are to preach Christ and him crucified and never leave that. We don't ever outgrow preaching Christ and him crucified. That is so true. Um, however, there is a Lutheran idea bent, law gospel bent hermeneutic to the scriptures that um, I had embraced that really had reduced so much of the Bible to positions that I, I really didn't uh, have understandings of things like the imprecatory Psalms. I, I didn't have a way to think through or process through how the Old Testament applies today or if it applies today. And what about the law of God today after we know we're justified in Christ? What is this third use of the law? Postmillennialism for me really helped me understand and grow into gospel centrality and, and really grow out of the simple law gospel paradigm and into a more fully understand, a fully orbed understanding of God's law and God's gospel and then the way that the law of God functions in the life of the home, the church, and in society as a whole. So the Psalms kind of fell into this where I can sing the imprecatory Psalms without feeling guilty about it and we can call for God to destroy his enemies and be loving and kind, realizing that these are the very scriptures that Jesus quoted. This is what he was familiar with, that he didn't ever at any moment call into question God's word. And so things like the imprecatory psalm started to make sense, that there is a war and the devil has been defeated, and now we are commissioned to go and take this place and gain ground for the glory of God, physical ground and spiritual ground for the glory of God, and literally get square footage on this earth. My home is the square footage right now, the dirt that I live on, 
is the square footage that we are claiming for God's glory. And it is a kingdom outpost. And we've got all these kingdom outposts throughout as God is continuing to build his temple brick by brick with his people. So a new understanding really of not just the Psalms and the imprecatory Psalms, but of so many other things as well. Um, Implication number five, uh, the works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in really do matter. When you embrace post-millennialism, you can take a, even a, a longer view of ministry and of your life. You can trust the Lord with the years he's, he's given you and the years that he's going to give you. You don't have to be in a hurry. It is, I think, a natural overflow of premillennialism to be in a hurry all the time and, and this urgency. And there is an urgency that we should have to share the gospel. But there is also this deep trust that can come in, in, in the Lord about faithfulness. You know, we, we can, uh, for instance, you know, premillennialism uh, premillennialism has often been labeled as, as those who are polishing, you know, you're polishing brass on a sinking ship. Why does this life matter? Why does this earth matter? Why does society matter? Uh, all that sort of thing. I mean, that's like God of the MacArthur. You know, the funny thing about MacArthur is that he's been in his life actively working against his premillennialism by building these institutions and, and I mean, plodding along and doing the work that God has had him to do and uh, being faithful with the talents that God has given him. But he has left a, a legacy um, through what God has done in his life into the life of other people. And it's just been remarkable. And he's got his errors and he's crotchety in a lot of ways. I get that. But the life that we live and the work that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in really matters. And we can be patient and do what God's called us to do today without panicking, without freaking out, without thinking that we have to have the new, biggest, brightest, the smoke and mirrors, have to grow the church as fast as we can today, have to get generational wealth right now. We can be faithful to plug along in our 20s and to plug along in our 30s and to plug through our 40s and 50s, learning the lessons that God has for us in the time that God has those lessons for us and then do what he's called us to do in that moment, not trying to live in last year or 10 years ago or the decade in the past, not trying to live five years or 10 years in the tw- or 20 years into the future, but doing what God has called us to do now as we think about what God may do in the future and trust him with that. And so our work matters. And, you know, every, every Christian understands that, but there's something about post-millennialism. It changes. It, it just changes your view of work and what you do and what God has prepared for you to walk in. And uh, um, six, the God's law. Um, I, theonomy used to be this weird, uh, which would be God's law in the civic realm. And how do we see God's law to ancient Israel and what laws have passed away, what laws haven't passed away? And one of the things that I've been learning, and this is what I've, I've seen in a few episodes ago when I talked about Christian nationalism, if you bring God's word into the public square, people label you some sort of uh, Christian nationalist or somebody that is opposed, oh my goodness, you're opposed to pluralism. And the Christian response is, yes, I'm absolutely opposed to pluralism. Pluralism is not a virtue and we should not bow down to it. We should call it out for what it is. It's an enemy. It's Satan driven. And we want to see Christ destroy and topple pluralism. And we want to see Jesus glorified everywhere. And so with, with this post-mill eschatology, what ends up happening is you understand the law and the gospel and then the law again on that third side. And you realize that in the public square, God's law is authoritative. And so what that means is, is that those who are servants of the Lord in the public public sphere, they need to know the law of God. The law of God, Spurgeon says, the law um, is the, the, the needle of the law precedes the thread of the gospel. 
And we need public servants that understand God's law and they know right from wrong because right now it's so clear when we abandon God as a nation, meaning in the public square, when the public square abandons God in the civic realm, what ends up happening is everything about right and wrong, left and right, up and down gets inverted. And then what you have is evil being rewarded and good being punished. And that's what we see. It's You cannot argue that right now in our society that what is happening is evil is being rewarded and good is being punished. And so we as the church have this moral obligation given to us by God because we are citizens of the United States of America. We have governing responsibilities here. Therefore, the nations of the world, not just in democratic or not just in constitutional republics, but in every sort of government, they have to understand, even if they're a king or a queen of some nation in a monarchy, they have to understand God's law. And it's our obligation to instruct them on God's law if they don't know. And so how are they going to be convicted if they don't hear the the law and the gospel? And this is the, I think, um, one of the, and and by the way, um, the theonomy and and modern theonomists, when you hear that, instead of hearing the boogeyman uh, thing about theonomy, think Puritanism. This is Puritanism. Read any Puritans about God's law in the public square. Read about the, 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 uh, the New England Puritans that came from England. And you'll find, oh, this is theonomy, God's law in the public square. This is uh, God's law versus secular law. This is God's law versus man's law. And what we can come up with as a secular society or from natural revelation is not as good as wisdom from above. Wisdom from below is never as good. Law from below is never as good. It's never as holy. It's always going to be twisted, crooked, or messed up. And that's why we need law given to us from above. And what God gave to Israel in the civic realm is the best sort of law ever given. And for some reason, we think, if you go to a com- if you go to like some community, if you just think all of God's laws in the Old Testament, 600 and some laws, and that are many of most of those laws, many of them have been passed uh, have passed away and, and been fulfilled in Christ. But when you just think about all of them, put them all together, 600 and something laws, and we think about God's law, what many people think is, well, that's tyrannical. God's law today is that that is overbearing. It's burden like all the, the death penalty for so many people. Oh my goodness, all this stuff. All right, go to your local city. And open up the law books in your local city and see how many laws are on the books. How many laws are on the books in our country? And there's literally tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of laws on the books. And almost all of it, almost, I mean, so much of it is built on natural revelation and it's wisdom from below rather than wisdom from above. Even in that, what's more tyrannical? <laughs> like, what's more tyrannical? The, these laws over here that are established to punish the good and reward the evil? And then all these laws that go and all these tax codes and all this kind of stuff or God's law. And here's the truth. God's law provides the most freedom for the most amount of people. And so with this embrace of post-millennialism, you realize that the, the, the Great Commission is about discipling the nations, baptizing people from every nation that Christ has purchased, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there's going to be people from all these tribes and tongues and people everywhere, and we are teaching them, here nations, here's how you live in accordance with God's law. Uh, One last thing, and we'll wrap this up. This morning, Ransom was doing school and talking about the nation of Haiti. And when I was in Haiti after the earthquake in 2014, I believe it was, or no, 2012, I believe it was, early 2012, I was boots on the ground, I think it was, um, no, it was 2010, I think it was 2010. Or, or late nine, whatever. I was there, boots on the ground, a month after the earthquake. 
And we were hearing stories there of the locals, and we asked, you know, is it true that there was really this this pact with the devil from the national leaders and from the president in the late 1900s? And they're like, yes, absolutely. There was this pact that the Haitian government made with the devil and dark forces and all the witchcraft and voodoo that goes on to that place. It's not surprising. It's still happening to this day. And what you find is, guess what? Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Poverty everywhere. It's unbelievable the difference between the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti as you cross that line. It's just, you don't forget it if you've ever done that. What is that? What we need in our country, and this is what we need around the world, is we need civic leaders who are elected or appointed, who understand God's law, and they declare God's law, and they submit to God's law. And in doing that, for those that don't know Jesus, if they don't know Jesus and they hear God's law, they either rebel against it, or they're convicted by it. And that's why we've got to be those who are proclaiming the gospel, God's law and God's gospel, because the gospel of Jesus changes people. It's the power of God into salvation. And so if you don't talk about God's law at all, you cannot preach the gospel. The, the gospel presupposes a law that's been broken and good news to hear about Jesus who came and died in the place of lawbreakers. So if you don't talk about God's law, you can't proclaim the gospel. It's a part of proclamation of the, the good news is that there can be forgiveness of these sins. And so post-millennialism has, for me, been just so life-giving and exciting. And, you know, if I'm wrong, there, again, there are all these things in the scriptures where, you know, if I'm wrong on the eschatology, on these other things here, like we, we know that these things I just mentioned are true, whether the eschatology is true or not. These things are uh, things that we are to walk in. And so even if you're not on the post-mill bandwagon, even if you're not on the post-mill train, like I said, I've only been here three years, um, in this position, even if you're not there, I think all of these warrant our consideration that we should be uh, optimistic. God's at work. God will take care of us. God is at work. And it's inevitable. You can't stop the purposes of God. So we should be optimistic about the future. Secondly, we should have generational ambition. We need to uh, build bigger barns, not for ourselves, hold our hands and say, whose shall these things be? But we need to say, these will be my generations because a good man leaves an inheritance to my children's children. And I, my generosity is regulated by God's word. And my first generosity goes to my family. It goes to my generations. So I need to be wise in my investments. I need to be wise in buying land. I need to be wise in what I purchase and the possessions that God has given me because there's going to be a time where I have to sell my possessions and give to them. And if you don't have possessions, you can't sell your possessions as currency. You can't get currency from them. You can't trade them. So be thinking about generational ambition. Number three, courage over our enemies. We have promises, precious promises in the scriptures that the enemies of God will fail and Christ will prevail. No, no matter what you believe in the timeline of prophecy or the binding of Satan, we all believe that Satan will be finally and fully and eternally, and whether he is right now or to what degree he is right now, he's defeated because of the work of Christ. And so we have courage over our enemies that who is an enemy of God? Who is a king of this earth? Who is Nebuchadnezzar compared to God? And so we can have courage over our enemies. We can have a new understanding. We need to be singing the imprecatory psalms. We need to be singing the psalms in general. Churches must re-embrace the singing of the psalms. It's a command from, from God to us in his word in Colossians. Now, number five, we need to work for slow growth. We don't need to panic. We need to be faithful in our posts and trust that the Lord is going to work. And we can trust him in that work. And we don't have to be forceful. We can stay the course for the long haul. We can be in one place for a long time if God would see fit to have us there and keep us there and watch God work over the long haul. And how great would it be at the end of our life to look and see these ebb and flow of ministry where for a decade God sent growth and then for two decades we were plateaued and it seemed like not much was going on. And then all of a sudden again there was growth and you look back at the end of your life and you and your wife are loving 
loving each other and your kids and you're seeing your grandkids and you're seeing all these people from church that you've seen over the decades. They're married and growing kids and all this kind of stuff and, and doing great things to the kingdom. And you just look back and you say, look at what God has done. I mean, don't we all want that? We all want that. And then six, um, we see God's law for the nations. We need the law of the gospel to go forth to the nations and we don't need to be afraid. That starts with our homes. It starts with our church. It starts with our cities. And then it goes into our regions and our state. And we want to trust that the God, God is going to continue to bring increase. Guys, I want to thank you so much for listening. Please like, subscribe. Hey, when you leave a review, not only is it encouraging, but honestly, or when you share a post or anything like that or make any positive comments, it's really encouraging because this is not a very large podcast. I don't have a huge following. This isn't a top 100 podcast or anything like that. And uh, on Gab, I've loved my Gab followers. It's been so much fun to see that uh, grow and interact with some of you. But if you share this, if you subscribe, or even if you leave a rating or review, that really helps get, get the word out. I don't exactly know how, but everybody I listen to says that that's the case. And so if you want to do that, please help me spread the word. That's helpful. If you want to support the show, then you can do that as well. Uh, you can do that via PayPal, and I'm going to try to get that worked out on Gab Pay as well. Uh, again, apologize for the audio today. I hope you're able to hear this well, and I hope you have a good rest of your day.